0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice
2: dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
3: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your
1: health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So, whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's
3: uh1.com.
0: Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. At your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. Welcome to Milk Street Radio from the public radio exchange, PRX.org. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
4: Yeah, I mean, to me, under mix, under bake. (laughs) Uh, And under whip. And under whip. There we go. The under bakery.
0: Mm. (laughs) That's You you can talk. I'm just going to finish this now. I'll I'll have another bite, too, actually.
4: Thanks.
0: That was a clip from my visit to Violet Bakery when I got a cooking lesson from owner Claire Patak. You know, I baked my first cake when I was eight years old, and I've always had a passion for this very ancient art. But Claire Patak made it clear that I know much less than I thought. If she doesn't like the rules, she just changes them. If all-purpose flour is bland, she uses whole wheat or ground nuts. If an upside-down cake is too sweet, she uses rye flour salt and those little bits inside apricot pits to add a touch of bitterness. She doesn't whip her egg whites to stiff peaks. They look half-beaten to me. And her batters appear about half-mixed as well. The results are, of course, sublime. So we present a cooking lesson from Violet Bakery. Claire Patak reveals her secrets and her approach to a very new world of baking. Now it's time to check in with Raina Javeri from Milk Street about this week's recipe. So Raina, today we're talking to Claire Patak, P-T-A-K. She's the owner of the Violet Baker in East London. I was there a few months ago and got to cook with her. She gave me a little baking lesson. But I also got to eat her chocolate prune cake. Now she used to cook for Alice Waters at Chez Padise. She was the pastry chef. And she came up with this combination of chocolate and prunes, and uh, I didn't come back with a cake. I came back with the, the memory of the cake and the recipe, and we brought it into Milk Street.
5: Claire has her own style of baking, and it's one that we really love here at Milk Street Kitchen. One of the things that changed her way of approaching baking was when she moved from California to London, and noticed that the Brits have a very different flavor preference than we do here in the United States. She noticed, for example, that fresh fruit tarts and other minimalist desserts that were popular at Chez Panisse were not as popular as traditional tea-time treats, such as Eccles cakes and treacle tarts. So she really had to do some work to wrap her brain around this concept of baking with dried fruits and enjoying their deep and spicy flavors. So in this chocolate prune cake, The prunes are something that we typically don't think of as delicious, but they in fact are. And that might have something to do with the fact that they are macerated in whiskey or rum.
0: Yeah, that gets over the dried fruit thing right away. So uh, one thing, this is a flourless cake. It's very gooey in the center. And um, she also taught me a few things about baking that I thought were actually really surprising. And it just rocked my world.
5: She has a few really useful rules about baking, and this cake, because it's flourless, it has a gooey, pudding-like center. And her rule number one to achieve this consistency for this cake is do not overbeat your whites. We're typically used to beating our egg whites to medium or stiff peaks before we fold them into a batter, for example. But this is a soft batter, and it requires the egg whites to be beaten to the same consistency as the batter. That way, when you fold the whites into the batter, they'll actually fold instead of splintering or crumbling.
0: And there is a trick to this, by the way. You have to add, as she said, sugar to the whites when you whip them. And that means they're creamier, they're more stable, uh, they won't fall apart easily. So a little bit of sugar with the whites means you can actually underbeat them a little bit and they're easy to fold in. So a little trick from Claire.
5: And her second rule is not to overmix the batter. So we're not going for um, a uniform color of the batter, but in fact you want to see streaks of egg white and streaks of the, the chocolate batter base uh, when you're mixing the cake. And her last and final useful rule is don't overbake this cake. It wants to be a little bit gooey in the center, so the way to check is just to make sure that it wiggles just a little bit. It might even seem underdone but it's actually just perfect and ready
0: rule number three is wiggle my good and and rule number four by the way is when you serve it you refer to it as whiskey chocolate cake not chocolate prune cake just tell people that after they've had a slice (laughs) because then they'll actually buy into the concept of prunes macerated whiskey served at the table with chocolate
5: it's changing our idea of prunes and cake entirely
0: one piece of cake at a time thank you reina thanks chris You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website. That's MilkStreetRadio.com. Our shows are also available on iTunes. Coming up, Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast takes a scientific look at the physics behind snack mixes. Why, in fact, do the larger pieces always end up floating to the top? First, I chat with Claire Patak, author of The Violet Bakery Cookbook. There are a handful of places in the world where you feel right at home, and the Violet Bakery in the east end of London has to be one of them. It's small. It's packed with coconut cupcakes, pumpkin whoopie pies, butterscotch blondies, rye brownies, and amazing banana bread. The owner, Claire Patak, is the Renee Zellweger of the baking world. She's quirky, she's energetic, smart, and also charming. She started her career as a production assistant in Hollywood, but then auditioned for Chez Panisse and got the job on the first try. She moved to London in 2005 and then opened a food stall in London's Broadway Market. She soon realized that the English prefer Eccles cake, a currant-filled scone-like offering, to the fresh fruit tarts she was famous for at Chez Panisse. I caught up with Claire at her London bakery. Okay, here's a quote which I found surprising. I really love sauerkraut. I think it is the elixir of life. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I said that. Okay, but you're a baker. So are you putting sauerkraut in your cake or what?
4: No. <laughs> as we know, naturally fermented vegetables are really, really good for us. They they really help to balance alkalinity in our bodies. And and basically, when you eat as much sugar as I eat in my in my profession, I love to have a really good balance of fermented foods. So I love sauerkraut. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay I, I just was worried it was one of these health food things you add to your applesauce cake or something I don't know nope <laughs> so th- this is one of those little nuggets that sounds like a, a PR releases used to play the Chez Panisse game when you were a child using yeah. leaves and stuff is that really true <laughs> I just have to ask
4: <laughs> I know it sounds made up but it is actually true um a very dear friend of mine named Lasley Witt, um, and I grew up playing Chez Panisse. Um, she, her mom had this really beautiful garden, and we used to take big leaves from a tree in the, in her garden and use those as plates, and <laughs> and we would like make pretend food out of flowers and things, and um, and yeah, we'd play Chez Panisse. And then I and then that was my future right there.
0: <laughs> so so you moved to London in what 2000... Five, 2005
4: 2005 yeah. yeah
0: you worked at Moro, uh which is a wonderful restaurant St. John you also were food stylist to Nigel and also to Jamie so uh, let me just ask you about that how, how do you style food for Nigel and Jamie this was uh desserts this was all kinds of food are they yeah, different kinds of styles ki- between them
4: all kinds of foods and you know um it's it's always really exciting to cook the recipes of, of famous chefs that you admire, especially. And they're two people that I have always admired from before I moved to London. And so it's very exciting to, to cook their recipes. And, and yeah, and they're very different. And so when you're doing the styling, I mean, I always kind of bring my own, I have my own approach that I bring to it. But then You know, you kind of you you have to be true to to their personality, I feel, when you're cooking other people's food. So I I try to do that. (laughs) And they're definitely different personalities. Yeah.
0: So then you decide to start selling desserts, cakes at a market in London. But I would assume the tastes of of Londoners different than the tastes of Americans. So what is it you thought would sell and what is it that actually did sell when you open your stand?
4: Yes, that's really true. I was, um I was coming, you know, straight from Chez Panisse and I was still so focused on fruit really it was sort of the uh, fresh fruits, um seasonal fruits were the sort of focus focal point of everything I was doing and it was sort of my interpretation of the California interpretation of the French Galette, So it was this sort of coming back actually to to where it came from with French apricots that I was getting to make these, you know, beautiful caramelized tarts on my market stall and it was like everybody was sort of like, hmm, pretty but not really interested. And kept asking for things like Eccles cakes, which are you know puff pastry filled with raisins and then and then lots of things with um you know molasses and dark dark flavors ginger ginger was really popular, but there was a really different palette, and so I had to kind of adjust what I was making but it was a, it was a really nice challenge actually
0: so the violet bakery in east london that you run has cupcakes lots of cupcakes yep. is that something that was a tradition in london or you brought that tradition to them
4: they had something that they used to, that they called fairy cakes and actually when i started my stall there was a lot of debate as to where where cupcakes came from if they were british or if they were american i felt that what i was making was very american this was right around the time of Magnolia Bakery and all that. But then, what happened with the craze? Then got blamed on America.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Everything gets blamed on America. It's okay. We can handle it.
4: We can handle it.
0: So, w- w- when I was there uh, visiting you and gained, you know, I don't know, eight pounds in one day, um, <laughs> you-, you made an upside-down apricot cake and the flour was it a rye mostly rye flour in that rye flour yeah it was
4: yeah. 100% rye I think yeah and, and that was
0: that was an eye-opener for me because it's it has a slightly bitterness to it which really paired nicely with a caramel sauce on the apricots mm. could you just talk about that and you do this a lot so are there some rules about how to do this or when to do this
4: well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm delighted that you like the cake so much. That That's really cool. I, I think, you know, you, you have to be careful. I encourage people to experiment in the kitchen a lot, but you can't always take a recipe and just substitute cup for cup or gram for gram the flour because they do have different properties and different, um, you know, the, the texture is different and will absorb liquid in a different way. So I try to develop a recipe specifically for the flour that I want to use. Um, And in that case, you know, I took the idea of an upside-down cake with, you know, a lot of fruit and a a kind of almost equal amount of sponge and a nice caramel um, um, base, which becomes the top, and then sort of adapted it so that it would be a nice cakey texture but in general yeah I mean you can really do that and it's so exciting because there's so many amazing flours out there right now like sorghum and rye and spelt of course I love rice flour as well
0: so one thing I notice about your baking is the emphasis on opposing flavors or complementary flavors sweet obviously, but salty, even bitter in a flour like rye. So when you're thinking about creating a recipe, are you thinking about all the different parts as, as it was a piece of music? In other words, it's not just all sweet.
4: Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in balance, of course. And I, I, I find it really interesting how the salt, sweet, bitter, sour, Um, profiles can can really work together in a a surprising way. I think I've said this before, but you know, when you add a little bit of salt to something bitter, it makes it actually sweeter on the palate, as opposed to it tasting salty, and things like that. And so I I kind of started playing around with that. And yeah, so it's so exciting what what comes from that. And I just I also feel and this has always been my thing. But if you're going to eat you know, a cake or some kind of pudding or something really naughty, then it should really be worth it. So it needs to taste great. It just really needs to taste great. It's the most important thing.
0: You actually referred to a dessert as naughty. <laughs> yeah.
4: That's,
0: that. You don't believe that.
4: Come on. Yeah, it's so naughty. Yeah, definitely. I do. I do hmm. believe that. <laughs>
0: So give us a couple examples of things you bake uh, and sell at Violet Bakery that have a sort of a fresh approach to dessert.
4: Okay. Well, we have actually a new thing on the menu right now, which I'm loving, which is gooseberry and sorghum crumble bar. And it's sorghum flour and rice flour and then a gooseberry jam that we make. And we have this woman who has an allotment um, nearby, which is sort of like a public um, city garden. And she grows gooseberries for us. And we make a jam out of those and then put them in the middle and then put this sort of crumble topping on top with brown sugar. Mm And it's, it's got – the sorghum has that kind of bitter thing going on and then the super tart gooseberries and a little bit of sweetener. And they're really interesting. I love those. And then I've always done salted caramel, um, which I know is just super uber everywhere. But it is it is the perfect example of that. I mean, it's really that saltiness tempering the, the sweet caramel. So you just get this incredible – sweetness and saltiness, and then it's there's a balance that is really satisfying. So that's a good one. What else? Well, our prune cake that I made with you, with the alcohol, is, I love that. So uh, a really boozy whiskey with prunes, and there's a bitterness to the alcohol, obviously, and then these sweet sort of decadent prunes, uh, almond cake and chocolate all goes really beautifully together.
0: Um, Yes, I've made that. Six times now. Thank you very much.
6: (laughs) Thank you. So
0: let's talk about some things I learned from you about baking, sort of generic tips, because I was standing there watching you cook.
4: I love Um, that you learned anything from me. That's so exciting.
0: I did. I learned many (laughs) things. Um, And one of them was egg whites. And and you, you know, for for 25 years, I've told people to whip whites to they hold a two-inch peak. I noticed that your whites did not hold a two- inch peak they were just a little short of that so yeah. h- how would you just first of all explain why and then explain exactly how you know when your whites are perfectly whipped and h- how the listeners would know
4: okay so what I go for with my egg whites is that they're the same or similar as possible of a consistency as whatever they're being folded into so if it's a if it's a you know melted chocolate mixture that you're folding them into, you want them to have the same viscosity generally. when what I always do too with most of my recipes is I always add sugar to the egg whites. So there's old recipes that i've that I've tried where you put the sugar in with something else. so you put it in with the butter or you put it in right. with the yolks and then you have the whites on their own and then they're just these like curds basically they become dry and crumbly and impossible to stir into your cake mix and then you end up like knocking all the air out that you've whipped into it.
0: So if, if you, if you took the whisk part of a standing mixer and and took it off and ran it through the whites and then pulled it out, would the whites hold on to the whisk or would they would sort of fall down into the bowl?
4: They would fall back down into the bowl. Okay, They would be ribbony back into the bowl so they would come off of the whisk and they would go on to, back onto the rest of the whites and then they would sort of slowly you know sink down they wouldn't okay. hold hold a peak
0: Mm-mm. any other tips for home bakers uh, little things you've learned over the years that might give them better results
4: I tend to do three tests. So I check my nose. My nose will tell me when a cake is almost ready. I mean, you have to be tuned into your senses, but like if you you get a whiff of your of your cake and usually It's the first indication that it's nearly done and it never fails. It's amazing. I'll walk Hmm. into the bakery and I'll just smell something and I'll say, Oh, have you guys checked the oven? And somebody will (laughs) inevitably be like, Oh my God, thank you. And you know, then, you know, they remember that something's just about to be done and, or they'll say, Oh, my timer has two seconds left. How did you do that? And then you would take the cake out and, and test it with um, a finger, meaning just to press really lightly on the surface. And it, Depending on the style of cake that you're making, if it's a sponge, you know, it would sort of spring back. If it's a cake like we were talking about, that's a, a egg white chocolate folded in kind of cake, then you'd want it to sort of still be a little wobbly in the middle. So that touch test is another one. So you kind of have to know what type of cake you're making for that one. Um, and then the same with the skewer test, because that works, but you have to know whether or not the cake that you're making should come out clean or if it should out gooey sometimes it should come out gooey so you kind of need all three
0: so there are probably thousands of people listening who think that owning a bakery in london would be, be the absolute coolest thing in the world <laughs> and here's here's your opportunity to tell them the truth so so really now, now that you've done this for a while what tell me the difference between your expectations going into opening your own bakery and what it's really like
4: Well, it's kind of come full circle, to be honest with you, because I always thought I'm never going to open a bakery. No way. It's the dumbest thing you could do. It's crazy. It's too much work. (laughs) Like, I'm never going to have any fun and I'm just going to be exhausted the whole time. And then I (laughs) moved to London and I started a cake stall thinking like, oh, you know, it's cool. It's just one day a week. And it sort of was a creative project (laughs) while I was doing other things the rest of the week. And then, and then it just, like, starts to snowball and you can't stop the momentum of, of something that is liked, you know. It's, like, it was really exciting because it was popular and it did well. And so people say, when are you going to open a bakery? And then you think, oh, yeah, I should do that. And you get totally carried away by, you know, people liking you. It's your ego. <laughs> and then you do it. Oh, my God. And then you're... <laughs> and then you're really regretting it at moments. But I have to say, um, I, I really feel I'm so happy that I did it.
0: Baking is often referred to as a science, but science is full of happy mistakes, inspiration, gut instinct, and theoretical flights of fancy. Some scientists believe in parallel universes. Every outcome actually happens. For example, if you let the queen of diamonds fall onto a table... Some scientists claim that it falls both face-up and face-down every time. If I follow this logic in the kitchen, that means that every possible outcome exists. Or, put it another way, my chocolate cake always comes out perfectly in a parallel universe far, far away. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Coming up after the break, I asked Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast to explain the physics of snack mixes— and Adam Gopnik thinks about how cooking addresses the issue of cultural appropriation. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
2: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash white in Portland, Maine since 1999.: So a white beer is a very old style of beer. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
5: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allegash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: Welcome back to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time to check in with our regular contributor, Dan Pashman, host of WNYC's Sporkful Podcast. Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you? What scurrilous idea are you going to foist upon us this week?
7: Well, I thought this seems like a good time of year to talk about snack mixes. Because... (laughs) 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 <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Every time of year is a good time of year for that. That's I mean, look, there's no time of year when a snack mix is wrong, right. but there's a lot of sports on TV that people are gathering around to watch. As we head into the holiday season, there's a lot of gatherings and a lot of cocktail parties and office get-togethers and mingling. And so there are just a lot of different kinds of events in particular around now that are going to call for snack mixes. And today I thought that I would just raise a couple of issues for people to keep in mind when you're making your own snack mix. And I'll leave it up to you, Chris, and the professional chefs, which I'm not, to determine exactly which ingredients you want to bring together. But I think there's some sort of properties of physics and science that you want to keep in mind to make the best snack mix. The biggest consideration you need to think about when you're making a snack mix is the shapes of the different components that you're bringing together. Okay, for a few reasons. First, you want to be able to get a nice handful of the snack mix. And you want to be able to grab that handful and pop the whole thing in your mouth to get a whole bunch of different flavors and textures all at once. Am I right?
0: So this means equal size ingredients or what? what?
7: They don't need to be all equal size, but you don't want the, uh, you know, proverbial square snack in a round snack mix. You know, you don't want, (laughs) let's say, pretzel sticks. Not even the big cigar-sized pretzel sticks. I'm talking about the three-inch mini pretzel sticks, but those are difficult. If you imagine a couple of those laying in your hand, along with some peanuts and some other components, you can't just toss one of those pretzel sticks into your mouth. They need to go in to your mouth in a certain direction to fit. And that's a big issue. And it, then the other thing you want to think about with regard to the shapes and sizes of your components is a scientific principle known as granular convection, which scientists actually have nicknamed the Brazil nut effect. I can hardly wait. Yeah, you can Google (laughs) it. Basically what it says is when you have a lot of particles of different shapes, when the particles are jostled or mixed or vibrated, the largest particles will rise to the top. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do remember this, yeah. That's why the Brazil nuts always end up on the top of the mix. And so you need to take that into account when you're mixing your mix. So what I recommend you do is take a big, clear glass bowl, So you can see all your layers, and you fill the layers into the big glass bowl, biggest ingredient first, so in order from biggest to smallest, so that granular convection will work its magic sort of on its own. So you put the Brazil nuts on the bottom, if you're doing Brazil nuts, and you get smaller and smaller as you go to the top. And then you mix very gently using, remember that arcade game? Chris with the claw, you yeah, the claw? the claw down I, into the I, bin of toys. I, I, I do remember. Yes, like you, Toy you, Story. Yes, yeah. I remember? Have you ever won? <laughs> After spending ten dollars, that I get a twenty-five cent <laughs> toy? Yeah, I won. Right, right. Yeah, that's winning. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, if you turn your hand into a claw-like device, like that old arcade game, and you dip it down into the mix gently, and you sort of stick it down, just like the claw, pull your fingers together, closer to a closed fist, but not entirely closed, and then raise your finger up, and you're mixing gently only until you just get to the point that you have even strata throughout in your snack mix and then just keep in mind that as people dip their hands in and as they eat and as the mix is vibrated and jostled granular convection will always be at work and the smaller bits are always going to sink to the bottom as the bigger bits go to the top and so you want to Maybe keep some of the smaller bits in a side bowl that you can sprinkle over the top every once in a while to maintain ratio. You know
0: what goes through my mind sometimes when you talk about engineering of snack bowls? Go on. I kind of think that you should write a book or I should about the decline and fall of Western civilization (laughs) because (laughs) it seems like this is what all Rome, Greece, you know, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance have led us to this moment.
7: So are you saying that these discussions about snack mix are a sign of the coming collapse or that this is like the last bastion of true greatness? I
0: think it would be the former,
7: (laughs) 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 not the latter. Dan,
0: once again, you've uh, reengineered the concept of how we eat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Now, let's take a few cooking questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, welcome to Milk Street. Uh, ready to take calls?
6: I am ready. Thanks for joining us at Milk Street. Who's calling, and how can we help you?
0: Good morning.
9: I have a cr- cranberry orange scone recipe that often is good, but sometimes turns out flat. And a day or two after, they resemble tiny little hockey pucks more than anything else. So I am wondering whether it is the proportion of dry ingredients to wet, whether I am kneading the dough too little or too much, whether any kind of atmospheric conditions have anything to do with it, Where are you making these scones? I live at the foot of Pike's Peak in Colorado Springs.
6: Well, I'm sure that's beautiful, but it is slightly problematic when it comes to baking.
0: You said knead the dough. Yeah. Alarm bells went off. So a scone is essentially a biscuit, and you really want to barely handle the dough at all. When you cut out the scone or shape it, how thick is it?
9: Close to a half inch.
0: Okay, well, that's the problem. It sounds like you're overworking the dough. You need a very, very light touch. You barely want to touch it, just get it to come together. And I would say you'd want a good inch anyway, at least double that.
9: I've been told that because of living at altitude that I need with a recipe that calls for two teaspoons of baking powder, half a teaspoon of baking soda, to be a little shy of each, to make it maybe one and a half to one and three quarters. Do you agree with
0: that? Yes. Is this two cups of flour in this recipe?
9: No, I use three. I use two cups of all-purpose flour.
0: The two teaspoons of baking powder and half a baking soda is the ratio for two cups of flour. I do biscuits, so...
6: And that's at sea level. Yeah. And, you know, it's really helpful if there's acid in the recipe, like buttermilk.
9: I always use buttermilk in anything I bake.
0: When the dough comes together in the bowl, then what do you do?
9: I flour my hands, pick up the dough, and put it on a wood counter where I form it into the round to cut out the individual scones.
0: Are you using a rolling pin to do that? No. Just your hands? Yes. Other than, I think, going for an inch versus half an inch, it sounds like you're doing everything right. How much butter?
6: Uh, About one and a half sticks. I think you're doing everything right. I
0: have one question. Oven temperature, 400, 425?
9: No. Oven temp is 350. Uh, 425. Yeah, 425 is the
0: right temperature.
6: Yeah. Are you weighing or measuring your flour? Measuring. You should start weighing yeah. it.
0: And it's five ounces for a cup of all-purpose. I do have a scale, yeah. and I'll try it. I, mean, I think five is fine. You need 15 ounces for three cups of all-purpose.
9: There's two cups of all-purpose, one cup of cornmeal, and I divide that into a half a cup of coarse and a half a cup of cornmeal. Well,
0: medium. well, well, well. Hold on. Too much cornmeal. I think so, too. I, I, I wouldn't use any more than half a cup of cornmeal. That'll help a lot.
9: Yeah. And you Sorry. might have
0: to add a little more buttermilk to it. Cut the cornmeal half, add a half a cup of flour to replace it.
9: Right. I got it. I think I got the key ingredients. Okay. Give okay. it a shot. Thank you very much for your help. Yeah. Thank I look forward to the next batch. Thank okay. you. So
0: do we. Thank you so much. Take care.
6: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: This is Dave Purvis. How are you doing?
6: Good. Where are you calling from?
8: I'm from Martinsville, Virginia, okay. and I really appreciate you taking my call. Sure. My son is an avid deer hunter, and so we have several shelves of canned deer meat that I would like to be able to use in soups. But what I find is that the integrity of the chunks, once they've been canned, is pretty fragile, And so what we end up with is a stringy, gooey mess.
0: My neighbor, I hunt with him, and he does the same thing. He cans the chunks, and he pressure cans them with spices, and then as the liquid comes out of the meat, it sort of makes its own sauce. And he uses that as almost a flavoring. I would think that if you use maybe a pound of meat for a big pot of stew or soup, You're right, it will sort of disintegrate, but it's going to add flavor to the soup instead of using two or three pounds, where it might be a mess. He uses it more as a flavoring, almost.
8: Well, and that's what I attempted to do, because the soup that I make, uh, I'm more interested, really, in the flavor of the broth. Right. And so I'll add some vegetables as well as a little bit of beef, but I'm probably not using six ounces for two quarts Hmm. of soup. So it's not much. It's just kind of a background flavor.
0: Are you pressure canning this? Yes. Yeah. And how else do you use it when it comes out of the can? Well,
8: my wife will use the liquid and make gravy, and then she'll put the chunks back into the gravy, and we'll take it kind of like beef tips, you know, over rice or something.
0: Well, you also might add the meat because it's essentially cooked already. You might add the meat towards the end, too.
8: And that's what she does. Yeah just to warm the meat over. I was hoping to be able to use the meat in the soup a little bit in such a way that I could brown it and maybe get a little additional flavor.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. We've done some testing. and It turns out that Sarah's going to throw something at me. But with a stew, you know, you don't really need to brown meat. If you add lots of other flavors, it's really not necessary. So this idea of browning meat for a stew, for most places in the world, they don't do that. In France, they do. I I know, know, I know, I know. I'm over here with, like, all those great
6: deglazing liquids. I wanted to throw out another possibility here. You know, in terms of meat that's shredded, in one of my cookbooks, I have short rib ravioli. And there's a really great cheating pasta, which are wonton wrappers. Have you ever worked with those? No. You find them in the frozen food section or in the, um, you know, Asian section. And then if you took that wonderful Mm, venison and added the gravy to it, and then you just have to sort of put water on the edge of the wonton wrapper and then put another one on top and squeeze it so the air comes out. And then you could poach them, you know, just gently simmer them in water. So you fill or them with, the yeah. Fill them with the venison in the gravy. Which is Mm. what I do with short ribs and gravy. And then you could do even a beef broth, put the ravioli in there, you know, sort of fun, something different.
0: Wow. That sounds interesting, wonton. Or just add a little bit near the end for a suggestion. Yeah, yeah,
6: Yeah. that sounds like a good plan. All right. All All right. right.
0: Take care.
8: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to ask a cooking question, give us a call 1 855 4 Bowtie or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: Hi, my name is Dorothy, and I'm calling from North Oaks, Minnesota. And I have a question about unsalted butter. Most recipes that I'm interested in always specify unsalted butter. And the reason given is that it will control the level of salt in the recipe. I looked on the box and saw that there's a teaspoon and a quarter of salt in one pound of butter. So the salt in a tablespoon of butter is almost non-existent. Is the requirement to only use unsalted butter sort of a cultural artifact from the 70s that lets everyone know that you're sophisticated and have good taste? Or is it really true that that little dab of salt would cause a recipe to be oversalted?
0: I think at one time the salted butter was lower quality because it preserved it better. But now, today, salted and unsalted butter, there's no different in quality. In the last year, I've completely changed from always using unsalted to only using salted. When you saute, for example, if you use a little oil and butter, I just find that instead of just adding salt separately, I find there is a subtle difference, and I find things are more evenly and deeply salted with salted butter, The problem is in baking, if you use salted versus unsalted, you're going to have to adjust the salt a little. Also, unsalted butter, in my opinion, does not last very long in the refrigerator. It picks up flavors and gets nasty pretty quickly. Salted butter does last longer. So now I've... I feel better. Um, Sarah, okay, now tell me why everything I just said is totally wrong. Bing! Here's <laughs> the two.
6: here's the deal. The reason that salt is added to butter is as a preservative. So the butter will last a lot longer, but also here's what happens. It also masks when butter isn't as fresh, so you can't really tell as well as you could with the salt not being in there. I worked at a restaurant many years ago in New York City. It was a wonderful restaurant. What restaurant? La Tulipe. Oh, yeah. I was the chef tournant, which means I was a substitute cook. Everybody got a second day off because I did their job. Jacques Pepin came several times while I was there. I mean, he was a regular guest chef and I would follow him around like a little puppy dog. Oh, oh,
0: you're pulling a Jacques Pepin on me. Yeah. This is is so cruel. I'm sorry. You're in trouble.
6: So the first thing that Jacques would do when he arrived is he'd go into the walk-in and he'd inspect all the butter and throw half of it out. Now it was unsalted butter. But even as unsalted butter, he could tell right away that it was heading south. I like to start with unsalted because I feel like I can tell whether it's fresh or not. But I had a question for you, Dorothy. When you said you missed the salt, this is when you're having butter straight up. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, or even in sauteing, I feel like. I prefer a salted butter.
0: It's Sarah and Jacques Pepin gets Chris yeah, and Dorothy. there you go, there you go. <laughs> That's pretty serious, yes. Dorothy. We just confused you, but yes, there we are.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Very nice to talk to you. Yeah, both. our pleasure. Okay, Thanks thank so you. much. Bye bye.
0: I didn't know you were that kind of person to pull the Jacques Pepin well, card. No, no,
3: no. But
6: hey, it'll listen, be the Julia
0: Child card next. I know. I
6: will watch out. I know
0: because you knew her very well.
6: I've worked with a lot I, of
0: great I people. I know. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a call. The number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. After the break, can we learn how to tackle cultural appropriation through cooking? Adam Gopnik says we already have. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. <laughs>
3: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Welcome back to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Now let's check in with New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. And what's on your
1: amazing mind this week? Well, I'm not sure about amazing, but there is something on my mind. You know, normally when you and I speak, I take what our great-grandparents would have called the lighter view. What did they used to call that in Reader's Digest, right? (laughs) Life with a smile. But this time I really wanted to talk about something that's serious, that touches on food and touches more broadly on our particular cultural moment. And that's about the issue of what's called sometimes cultural appropriation and particularly how it affects the way we think about the way we eat. It's the sort of thing that we sometimes reference as political correctness. That's a term I'm always uneasy with because it has an ugly air of insensitivity to the basic courtesies of life. That's not something I have any sympathy with, and I'm always aware that most of the time, when people are accused of being politically correct, what they're really being accused of is being sensitively courteous. Nonetheless, it does seem to me that when we start becoming hyper-vigilant about the origins of what we're eating and worrying unduly about whether or not what we're eating comes from an exotic source that we are in some way to use the Kant term, "othering." by our appreciation that we're going down an extremely foolish and in some respects an extremely sinister path. You know what I have in mind is the kind of thing I'm sure you've been reading about where someone says they're serving sushi in the college cafeteria and we can't do that because that's a cultural appropriation from Japan or they're serving curry in the college cafeteria. And that's potentially very risky because curry belongs to Southeast Asian cultures. And when we try and make it for ourselves, we're taking what does not belong to us.
0: The question is, what is authentic in the culinary world? Which is an interesting question. You've
1: put your finger with your usual (laughs) acumen on exactly the right question. Because the answer to that is simple. Nothing is authentic in the culinary world. Whenever we look at the history of food, What we find is not a stream of authenticity spewing out, to use a rather awkward image, and feeding, sustaining an indigenous people. What we find always is a river of events and circumstances and contingencies and mixed-up cases. I think about curry particularly, Chris, because it's something I love to cook and I love to eat. And curry, as we know, is so far from being one distinct indigenous food of a particular area, is one of the great uh, melting pots of not just the history of cooking, but of the life of the world. Every night when I'm sitting down to cook, and I'm sure when you're sitting down to cook, we engage in the hybridization of many cultures and many kinds. I love to make a Burmese curry. And it has American chicken and Indian spices and indigenous local New York state vegetables. By the very fact of it being Burmese, it involves a melange itself, as you know, because what makes Burmese curries different from Indian curries or Thai curries is that they combine Chinese cooking techniques, stir-frying, along with Indian spices. It's both a stir-fry and it's a curry. Every time when we look seriously at the history of any one dish, no matter how indigenous it seems to a place, what we find is a history of mixing. As I've said before, to be human is to be hybrid. Part of the joy, and if I may say, part of the larger cultural significance of food is exactly that there it is every day on our plates, a reminder of the power and the beauty of cosmopolitanism.
0: I just interviewed a woman, Andrea Nguyen, who wrote Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, and she Mm -hmm. talks about Turkish immigrants in Germany Mm -hmm. make doner kebab, you know, the meat. And then Mm -hmm. Vietnamese cooks went back to Vietnam and threw that in their sandwiches, their banh mi. (laughs) So you have a Turkish immigrant in Germany, which ends up in Vietnam. And she said Vietnamese cooking is all about
1: change. Everything, even things that seem to us to be typical of the indigenous cooking, say of southwest France, like a cassoulet, for instance, turn out to be, when you examine them, this fascinating mix of things that were brought from the New World, like tomatoes and beans, things that belong to that part of the world, like foie gras, along with things that came from uh, the Middle East, like uh, spicy sausages. There is no such thing as an indigenous dish. Every dish that we eat and that we enjoy involves that essential human act of hybridization. And I think there's something even potentially sinister, not just silly, about this kind of thinking. The kind of thinking that insists that there's an essence, an authentic hidden part, something that belongs to that race or people or folk and cannot be shared, that's exactly at the heart of the worst kind of totalitarian thinking of the 20th century. That may seem like a big thing to say about the smaller world of food, but as I said, it's exactly because we love our food, not just for the way it sustains us, but for the way it reminds us so easily of the beauty of cosmopolitanism. You and I have talked before about the fad for that Jerusalem cookbook, right, which is the cookbook (laughs) of our time. But what makes that book so beautiful is exactly that it proposes that if only we could live our lives with the ease and grace with which we eat our food, if only we could accept that kind of coexistence in the West Bank and in Jerusalem that we accept so easily on our plates, our lives would be so much better. I think that the fight against the notion of cultural appropriation is really one of the most important fights. Along with the fight for sustainability, along with the fight for heirloom foods, along with the fight for slow food, the fight against the notion of cultural appropriation is central to the cooking culture of our time.
0: If I may, just one last thought. It's whether you view this as stealing from a culture or paying homage to a culture.
1: But it's not just whether we're stealing from culture, but we pay interest to another culture by taking interest in it. And that, I think, is part of the natural transaction of the kitchen,
0: and that's why you write for the New Yorker, and I don't. <laughs> you you put it so much better
1: than I possibly could. I cook every night, and you do too.
0: Uh, I suppose so. Adam, thank you so much. Terrific, Chris. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Now, let's take some more of your cooking questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go?
6: I am very ready, Chris.
0: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: My name is Renee.
0: Hi, Renee. Where are you calling from?
4: I'm calling from New York City.
0: How can we help you?
4: My question is, I end up every few weeks with a bag of ends of bread in my freezer, and I'm wondering what I can do with them.
0: How hard and dry are they?
4: They're usually pretty okay because I do keep them in the freezer and they're not that old. And I love salads, and of course the best part of salads are the toppings. So I'm trying to figure out how to make them maybe into croutons.
0: Well, I'm sitting with a crouton expert of the Western Hemisphere, (laughs) Sarah (laughs) Maltin.
6: Well, no, no, no. Two things. Actually, what occurred to me immediately, I was anticipating you're going to say, oh, they're all hard and dried out, which is a whole different issue. But If they're still (laughs) soft, what I would do is actually just pulse them in a food processor and make crumbs and then saute them with a little olive oil, garlic, salt and pepper. You can use it as a topping like you'd use chopped nuts you know, on almost anything like pasta or scrambled Mm. eggs or, I don't know, soup or even on uh, meat. Uh, That would be wonderful. But if you want to make them into croutons, something I learned is uh, croutons, if you let them stale, you know, like, let's say you're making stuffing, and you want to use it for stuffing, which is something else you could do, actually. If yeah, you,
3: that's a good idea.
6: Yeah, but th- what you want to do is not let them get rock hard, lose all that air. It's all just, that liquid. Yeah, all that liquid. Excuse me, that's what I meant. But instead, what you should do is cut them into little cubes and toast them in the oven until they're firm, and then they'll be good to go as a stuffing. The trouble is, if you let them stale, they absorb water. Whereas if you toast them, they'll maintain some of their integrity while becoming softened. Did I get that right,
0: Chris? The principle is there.
6: Yeah. So I'd say, so stuffing candidate, crumb candidate, crouton candidate. Same thing for the croutons. Just, you know, cut them into little squares and toss them with some olive oil and salt and pepper. And, and, you
0: know, that pasta. I mean, if you take pasta with olive oil, a little garlic, don't mince the garlic. Just, like, whole smashed cloves and cook them in some olive oil for a while. And then some parsley... And then those breadcrumbs on top.
6: Little hot pepper flakes. If you just do
0: that well, that's the that's best. D- absolutely pasta in the world. delicious. Yeah. yeah,
6: A little of the pasta cooking liquid maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really good. We have all sorts of ideas for your leftover bread ends.
4: I don't like wasting anything, so this is perfect.
6: Good for you, because so much food is wasted in this country.
4: This is great. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thanks Thank for calling.
0: You. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pam. Hi, Pam. Where are you calling from?
6: Chicago. We got somebody excited over there. It's the
0: hound of the Baskervilles. The
3: dog, sorry.
0: How how can we help you?
3: I was wondering what the difference between the two sides of aluminum foil is.
0: Uh, One's shiny and one's dull, and it makes absolutely no difference. It's just how they're rolled off the machine. The side that hits the roller gets shiny and the other side doesn't. But it doesn't matter in terms of which side you use at all.
6: You know, let me ask you a question, because that's sort of confusing to me, because I always thought that this is me, Sarah, here. (laughs) I'm not supposed to have the question. I'm supposed to have the answer. But I thought that the (laughs) shiny side was supposed to reflect heat. No? No. Makes no difference. No,
9: That's what I heard, too.
0: No.
6: Well, there is no Santa Claus. Pam, you and me. The only thing (laughs) about aluminum foil,
0: well, I, I, I want to ask Sarah a question, which is sometimes with acidic foods, it gets kind of nasty though, right, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, with aluminum, but yeah, you, it, aluminum yeah. foil either side yeah. doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. No, that, but that, but you shouldn't use it when You shouldn't let it to touch it. like for example, yeah. if you're cooking a, you know, a lasagna with tomato sauce, you don't want the aluminum touching right. the sauce right. cuz it will corrode.
0: Right. Yeah. Now, I do have a question and what kind of dog do you have?
6: Um,
9: it's a Scotty.
6: Oh.
0: <laughs> I love Scotties.
6: Does your dog always hate it when you get on the phone and ignore him or her? Well,
3: actually, it's my brother's dog. I'm at my mother's house. So Jones. you're
6: not responsible for the dog, yes. <laughs> okay.
0: Just for the aluminum foil. So it doesn't make any difference and keep it away from acid. That's all. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. There you
6: go. All right. Thanks, Pam. Thanks all right, for calling. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye.
0: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a call. The number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. This week I chatted with Claire Patak, owner of the Violet Bakery in the east end of London. In fact, I was actually there a few months ago. I didn't cook with her, but I did watch her bake. And I noticed that she underbeat the egg whites when she was making the chocolate prune cake. Well, I wondered why that worked, because the cake was extremely light. And here's what I found out. When you beat egg whites, you create air bubbles, and those are surrounded by water. Now, if you beat those whites too long, the water film on the outside of the bubble thins out and collapses. So when you slightly underbeat the whites, it turns out the water around the bubble is thicker and
2: more stable.
0: In fact, there's a second trick I learned from Claire, and that is add a little bit of sugar to the whites when you beat them. Sugar is hygroscopic, which means it attracts water. There's a thicker film of water around the bubbles and a much more stable, creamier egg white. You can actually see it right in the bowl. Now, the last thing she did was even more surprising. It looked like she was folding the egg whites about halfway, maybe two thirds way into the batter, big streets of white when she was finished. Well, it turns out in the heat of the oven, the batter actually gets very homogenous. So for really good light baked goods, the tricks are slightly under feature whites, dot to stiff peaks, add a little bit of sugar, one tablespoon per two whites, to make them stable. And when you fold them into the batter, fold them about two-thirds of the way. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can hear more of our weekly shows on iTunes and our very own website. That's MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetag. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help Debbie Paddock. Our Theme Music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional Music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.